Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pigliucci. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gelev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, our topic today is SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Ooh. We're going to talk about whether it's solid science, pseudoscience, or something else, and about some of the philosophical and scientific questions that SETI raises. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, it's so, not pseudoscience, is it? What, uh, what do you think? Those were your words. <laughs> I was quoting you there. Well, I, I was raising the question, but um, I right. think we can get the pseudoscience out of the way, right? I mean, it do, it's not in the same ballpark as, say, I, I don't know, astrology or UFO. Although UFOs is kind of related <laughs> as a topic. So, right. So you covered this topic in uh, one of my favorite chapters, actually, from your book, Nonsense on Stilts, right. uh, in which you talk about SETI as one of several sort of gray area murky borderline cases right. of science. And uh, I mean, my, my off-the-cuff take was that it's not, it's sort of a category error to ask whether it's science because it's not actually making empirical claims, it's simply looking for something. So I'm used right. to evaluating uh, the sort of scientific status of, of empirical claims about the world, like how substantiated are these claims? What evidence do they use? You know, are they logically coherent? But the, the endeavor of looking for something or of trying to create something or build something seems different than, you know, fields that are claiming things. Um, well, I see the point, except that I do think that SETI makes a claim, or at least it starts with an hypothesis. Okay, right? It starts so? with the hypothesis that there is more than one example of technological civilization out there in the universe. Th that it's possible, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, so in other words, there is a hypothesis underlying, in fact, there is this, a, a body of theory underlying SETI. Um, uh, now, we, we will get into the details in, in a minute, and mm -hmm. we'll see how uh, sort of solid or compelling that body of theory is. But there is a, a body of theory. I mean, there is the famous um, Drake equation, for instance, about which we can, we can talk in, mm -hmm. in, in a minute, uh, which purports to, to give the um, uh, basic outline of why is it worth, uh, in quantitative terms, to do a to engage in a SETI program. Uh, moreover, it's called all the other trappings of science. It's done by scientists, for one thing. Um, you know, it's done by, by, by astronomers and physicists and some biologists. Uh, it's done using fairly sophisticated, in fact, very sophisticated uh, scientific equipment. You know, they, these people use radio telescopes and highly sophisticated uh, statistical analysis of the data. So, I mean, it's got all the trappings of science. Um, Except, as you pointed out, there is no empirical data at the moment about no, the claim. crucial claim. No, I was saying claim. Well, there is a claim, right? I mean, there is oh, a hypothesis, not a claim. There is a the hypothesis. The hypothesis is that there might be detectable life out there, right? No, I think the hypothesis is stronger than that. The hypothesis is that there is detectable life out there. Oh, 
whether the hypothesis is correct or not, it's it's one of those things that that, that why they are they're oh, looking. Okay, so you can right. call it a hypothesis, but I don't. To the best of my knowledge, none of the SETI uh, proponents actually claim certainty that the hypothesis is true. They just think that it's worth investigating, right? Correct, but okay. that but that goes also for pretty much anything else in science. I mean, if if, if um, uh, you are a string theorist, which as you know, that's that's another one of those borderline areas that we talked about in the past. Right, right. If you're a string theorist, you do claim that the universe has whatever, 12 dimensions or 13 dimensions, if the theory is correct. I see. Uh, oh, okay. Right. So the question, I see. So the question you're asking about the scientific status of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is whether the hypothesis is, what, testable? Is right. that, testable, that the criteria sound, of a scientific? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, so what was your conclusion in asking that question? Well, the hypothesis, I think, is testable because, of course, if we, uh, you know, su- suppose that tomorrow morning we wake up and, and, and we open up Nature or Science Magazine or the New York Times, whatever, and if we find out that the SETI Institute has, in fact, succeeded. But clearly they thought that meant, that would have meant that the hypothesis is tested and, mm-hmm. and, and, in fact, correct. The problem is, what if we keep looking and we don't find anything for, you know, the SETI is going on since the 1950s on and off in, in different incarnations. So we're talking about 60 plus years already going. What if we go on for another century or another 200 years or another 500 years without finding anything? Does that test the hypothesis? And I suspect the answer is no, because one could say, well, just because you haven't found anything doesn't mean that there's nothing out there. In this case, you know, uh, skeptics often um, mistakenly, I think, uh, claim that you cannot prove a negative, which is simply not true. For instance, you can easily prove the negative that I don't have a million dollars in my pockets. Okay, you can search extensively through my pockets and, clear, and make very, very obvious that, that the claim is in fact true. But in this case, since we're, since we're talking about the entire galaxy, it really would be very difficult to prove a negative. Yeah, although I would say that talking in terms of proving or not proving is probably a less useful way to think about things. Like, I would, I would frame the question in terms of becoming more or less confident in the existence of life. So if we looked for a long time okay. and we and we felt that our methods of d- detection were, were pretty strong and we didn't find any, any evidence for 100 years, certainly that doesn't prove that there isn't alien life uh, or intelligent alien life, but, but it is, you know, somewhat solid evidence against it. Well, that's, that, that's actually debatable. I mean, I, in, normally I would agree with you, um, but because of the... the presumably very low likelihood to, to succeed to begin with because we're talking about, after all, first of all, searching for you know, the proverbial needle in the haystack, where the haystack in this case is huge. Right, right. Um, also, we may be looking at the wrong moment in the wrong place, right? So it's possible that, yes, there is a civilization, or oh, I don't know, on such and such, around uh, such and such star, uh, you know, 100 year, light years away from us, and we just happen to be looking five seconds after they broadcast their signal, and that's too bad. Uh, so the, the, it is, one can make a reasonable argument that even after centuries of search, you actually have only scanned a tiny fraction of the total possibility, which means that you really don't have much of a leg to stand on, statistically speaking, because you haven't, uh, you know, haven't taken in, in, into account enough of a sample size, basically. And the sample size is bound to be extremely small both spatially and, and temporally. Yeah, so I, I was, just then I was, I was simply making the theoretical argument that, that the lack of evidence, uh, the lack of signals provides some evidence against alien life. But obviously the amount of evidence depends a lot on all those parameters of 
exactly how strong our detection methods actually are and you know what our prior estimate is of uh, of the existence of intelligent alien life exactly um, i mean it does the, I, I read a little bit about seti's methods and it it does seem pretty hopeless i mean it <laughs> so like i mean first there's the problem that if you if you were beaming if you were an alien civilization that was trying to be detected which first of all we don't know that they necessarily would be. Uh, if you were trying to be detected, you would you would send a you know a beam out, um, and the longer distance the beam travels, the more spread out it becomes, and the harder it becomes to detect. So, if we're talking about vast interstellar distances, then it would be very difficult to detect. Um, and then there's also the problem that uh, not every kind of signal is actually detectable. Um, like so, as the U.S. switched from analog to digital transmissions, right. we became, you know, in, much more invisible to other civilizations. Uh, so, if other civilizations went through the similar, you know, transition, uh, technological transition as we did, as you know, we have good reason to think that they would, uh, then they would become similarly much harder to detect. Yes. Um, now there is. Um I want to go back over to the statistical argument that we were having right a minute ago mm -hmm. about, um, you know, we, we just said basically that even if, in fact, we don't find anything for 100 years or 200 years or something, mm -hmm. because the space of possibilities, or I should say the space-time of possibilities, is so big, that, sure, doesn't, sure. that doesn't really necessarily tell you much. Now, I think that it's interesting uh, to reverse the, uh, that argument, which is what some of SETI supporters do. How so? Well, so an, a common argument in, in the city community is that um, it, we already know that there is obviously at least one technologically advanced civilization capable of radio communication. That's us. Right. And they, um, uh, they say, well, given that, and since, since this is our only, the, the, we have a sample size of one, mm -hmm. right? and they use what, something called the principle of mediocrity uh, to right, say right. that, you know, right, to argue that, well, um, if there's no reason to think that we are, in, that we are unusual at all, uh, statistically speaking, so if, in fact, we are uh, representative of the space of possibilities, then it must be pretty, pretty frequent that there are uh, technological civilizations capable of radio communication out there. Right. That I is, have heard it, that argument made, yes. And that is a bizarre argument, as uh, has been pointed out by... Um, a philosopher a number of years ago, Andre Kukla, wrote an interesting article uh, that we're going to link to on, our, on, on the podcast site entitled SETI on the prospects and pursued worthiness of the search for us at the last intelligence. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that he pointed out is that um, the, the principle of mediocrity is actually invalid. It's logically invalid. Um, and perhaps the best way to, to understand that is that by the same principle, you could say something like, uh, we know of the existence of teenagers who skateboard in New York City. Therefore, uh, the existence of, of skating teenagers is a common feature of the universe. It is exactly the same argument. And it suffers um, from a very well-known problem in logic, uh, which is in some sense the uh, reverse of Pascal's, or it's related actually to, to the problem with Pascal's wager and the existence of God. So let's, let's remember, remind uh, our listeners of that argument in a minute, for a minute and then go back to city. So Pascal's famously said, said that uh, we, we don't know whether God exists or not. But he was making a probabilistic argument um, 
in favor of the fact that you should believe anyway. You should you make your bet in in in, the, in, in thinking that, that God actually does believe. Because he said, after all, there are two possibilities: either God exists or it doesn't exist. Uh, and since the stakes are, are very potentially very high, because you got you know. Uh, eternal damnation if you happen not to believe in God exists, or eternal reward if uh, if you actually happen to believe in God and it does exist. Mm-hmm. Then, given those those um, uh, given the rewards and punishments that are at stake, and given that the probabilities are fifty fifty, it, it makes rational sense for Pascal to believe. Now, there are several objections to Pascal's wager. One of which, of course, would be what makes you think that God would be fooled into by this probabilistic argument and wouldn't punish you uh, for playing the odds instead of actually believing. But anyway, uh, other than that... That's the, like number 25 on my list of problems. Of problems, <laughs> that's that. right. But the, the most fundamental, arguably the most fundamental problem with the whole argument is that what would it mean? You're, you're assuming that there's 50-50 chances. But in fact... Which God are we talking about? Because if there is a number of gods out there, possible gods out there, then, of course, if there's a thousand gods, the probability is actually one in a thousand that you happen to pick the right one. If there is 10,000 gods, uh, the probabilities are one in 10,000, so on and so forth. And then you also have, of course, the none of the above thing. Now, what that there's shows... There's also the possibility of the god who will damn you to eternal hell if you believe in him. Of course, right. Yes. So once you take in all, the, all these, if you actually do the, uh, the formal analysis of Pascal's wager, it turns out that basically the problem arises from, this, from, from the following situation, that he has a case scenario A and case scenario B, except that case scenario B, the existence of God, is subdividable in itself in a bunch of other scenarios, B1, B2, Bn, up to B infinity. And so that you cannot, and by, by the logic of the argument, you should say that they're all equally probable. And the argument quickly degenerates into nonsense. Now, the thing with SETI, uh, the SETI argument, assuming that we are a, a representative sample of the universe, um, just because we know that we exist, follows into a similar, has a similar problem. That is, you can make any number of statements about anything that we know about Earth, and by the same exact reasoning, argue that those are in fact, those situations are in fact characteristic or statistically representative of the entire galaxy, which they're clearly not. I mean, I, I doubt that any uh, SETI supporter, for instance, would uh, uh, seriously take the proposition that ski, uh, skating teenagers, uh, skateboarding teenagers are, are a common feature of the galaxy. But the, the thinking is exactly the same. You, cannot, you simply cannot say how representative the Earth and our civilization is, because, precisely because you have a sample size of one. The principle of mediocrity simply does not, it's inconsistent, it's incoherent from a logical perspective. So you can't argue on that ground. All that the, that observation tells you is that, yes, there is at least one civilization out there, so that it is possible to have technological civilizations in the galaxy. But we knew that to begin with, and that was, that's not a pr- particularly profound discovery. It really tells you pretty much nothing. In fact, as the author says, uh, Kukla says at some point, says the only logical, rational boundary, uh, bounds that you can put on the uh, chances that there is another civilization out there is between zero and one. In other words, between not, not at all and 100% certainty. In other words, you're not saying anything. You have no grounds, no epistemic grounds for actually making any prediction whatsoever hmm. because you have a sample size of one. I, I think you can bound it a little bit more than zero to How 100, would you do actually. That? Well, so first I should say, uh, I like your argument it's slightly different from the argument that I would have used against the mediocrity principle, which is that the the argument that you know, based on our sample size of one, uh, we you know we we think that it's actually not that unlikely that life would arise. 
that, that reasoning suffers from basically the anthropic bias that no matter so what we're interested in estimating is what is the chances of life developing per planet essentially mm-hmm. um, and we look at the information we have which is that well here's one planet and life arose on it uh, so the problem is that no matter how small the likelihood is per planet of life developing, if it develops on even one single planet, uh, intelligent life anyway, then the intelligent life on that planet is going to look at their history and say, hey, well, intelligent life evolved here, so uh, then it must not be that unlikely. And, and so the problem is that as long as it's greater than zero, no matter how tiny it is, it could be one in you know, a trillion, trillion, trillion chance of life developing, the, the planet where it develops will always think uh, erroneously right. that it's more likely than that's it actually right. was. So That's actually related. What you're saying is actually related to another point that Kukla makes in his, in his article, uh, which is um, that it is certainly the case that you, you can make an argument that if, um, if the universe were in fact infinite, that there, is, that there is an infinite number of possibilities out there, an infinite amount of time out there, then an event with even infinitely, you know, vanishingly small probability is bound to happen eventually. But the problem is that, first of all, we actually have... So then there are skateboarding teenagers somewhere else. Right, there are exactly. an infinite number of skateboarding teenagers. Precisely. Except, of course, that we have no reason actually to believe that the universe is, in fact, infinite unless okay, we're getting well, into multiverse. That was things. your premise for now, right, so go on. Right. But the other, the other thing is, um, Kukla makes the point that actually there is nothing that prohibits... Um, uh, that, that precludes the possibility that, say, the laws of physics are such that there are unique events in any particular universe, and we could be that unique events, event. So it's not, it's not hmm. true that, um, assuming that you have a sample size of one, it is not true that you can make the leap from saying, ah, well, there is at least one, so there must be at least a small probability that there is another one. It could very well be the case yeah. that there was only one of those events. For instance, you know, take the origin of the universe itself, after all. Uh, the Big Bang did happen once, as far as we can tell. So that yeah. event is not just rare. It really is unique. Hmm. That's interesting. I think the, the argument that if you have an infinite number of opportunities for something to happen, then it will happen an infinite number of times. I, think, I guess that's based on the assumption, which is sort of the theoretical assumption, that for every conceivable event, it has some probability of happening in any given situation, in any given opportunity. And so if you envision this sort of fundamental probability P and you, you know, have a, an infinite number of, of trials, then no matter how tiny P is, it will happen an infinite number of times. Right. That's how the reasoning goes. But Correct. I guess if you abandon the idea that, there's, that every, everything has some fundamental probability of happening in a given opportunity, then, then yeah, you could sort of somehow arrange the hypothetical universe such that it only happens once. Right. The, the funny thing that I, I think about these, these, these whole um, ideas is we, we should get more, a little more into the theory behind SETI, but this particular argument, the, the idea that if, even if uh, uh, something has a small probability of happening, given an infinite universe, it is bound to happen over mm-hmm. and over, this actually goes back to Lucretius to uh, the rerum natura. So this, this is a 2,000-year-old argument. What did Lucretius say? Uh, Lucretius said something along the lines of, uh, you know, given that the, if the universe is in fact infinite, any event is bound to happen over and over, no matter how unlikely the event is. And yeah. he, stu- he started that argument from a completely mechanistic perspective. Lucretius uh, was, you know, um, a follower of, of the Greek atomists, so he was a complete materialist. 
And uh, you know, the Rerum Natura, it's it's a great um, book. It's a, it's a uh, it's a poem basically that um, uh, that explains the mechanistic view of the ancient atomists. And it's beautifully written. It's, it's uh, it, it was a highly you know enormously influential book in uh, in ancient literature, arguably uh, into the Renaissance actually. Um, but it does start with this assumption that there is in fact an infinite. Uh, universe out there, and that assumption seems to be questioned by modern physics, so we don't actually think anymore that the universe is infinite, again, unless you're talking about we're talking about multiverses, which is a whole different different story. Right, that that does complicate things. I, I actually like the idea that the universe is infinite just because of some of the conceptual paradoxes and conundrums that it yes. generates. So one of my favorites, this is off topic, but just briefly, one of my favorites is the difficulty that it poses for utilitarian ethics. Um, so if you, oh. if you take the, the premise, sort of one of the basic premises of some common forms of utilitarianism, that you're trying to increase the average utility in the world or in the universe, mm-hmm. uh, then no matter how much good you do, you're doing a finite amount of good. Right. And if you divide a finite amount of good by an infinite number of, or an infinite amount of utility in the universe, if you right. have you know, an infinite number of beings, then you've done exactly zero good, no matter, no matter how much good you do. Yeah. There's a finite number divided by infinity. Is zero. That's an argument against cosmic utilitarianism in, a, in an infinite universe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're a little off track. So, a little off track. But, but wait, let me finish the yeah. thought I started earlier. So I had argued against the idea that uh, we can take... Our, the existence of intelligent life here is evidence that it's likely to arise on any given planet in the universe. But I did say that I thought you, our, the existence of intelligent life here was evidence that we could bound the probability right. slightly more than zero to 100. Um, and that's that if the probability of life arising on a planet were significantly less than one divided by... 100 billion times 100 billion. Mm, that's a which large is, number. Which, right. Or so we, we represent... Number. Right, right, right. So we represent uh, one occurrence of life. At, there, we know that there's at least one occurrence of intelligent life divided by all of the number of opportunities for intelligent life to, de- to arise. And so there are, what, 100 billion planets about, in our galaxy and well, like we 100 don't know billion galaxies? There's, the best, there's about 100 billion stars in our galaxy. No, I, we don't know how many of those actually have planets. Okay, but let's be conservative. But, yeah, sure. And say 100 billion times 100 billion. So right. one divided by that. It's a we can take that number. as like the lower, sort of a rough lower bound for the probability of life arising on a planet. Because if the probability were much, much lower than that, then it would be really unlikely for even right. one occurrence of life to arise. And we know that one did. Correct. Except that that does make uh, one uh, big assumption that some um, some writers uh, like the one that I was mentioning before, uh, you know, Kukla, uh, actually rejects or at least question, which is that you can actually that it actually makes sense to attach a probability to a unique event. Yeah, I know that's that's tricky. I, right. I actually don't quite know how to think right. about that yet. So if it is, if we're, if if we're talking about that, that that will get us into the philosophy of probability, which is probably behind the, the what we want to talk about today. Uh, but it is an interesting question because you know it, it does depend on what you mean by probability and how do you actually estimate the probability or the likelihood uh, of, of something. But I want to go back to the basics for a minute. So let, let, let's start with the. Um, uh, the basic theory uh, behind uh, the, uh, the SETI effort, which, of course, is the famous Drake equation. Mm-hmm. We just cannot talk about SETI without talk- talking about the Drake equation, which is named after Frank Drake, uh, who was one of the originators of the, um, 
of the whole city, and they were back in the, in the 50s. Now, the equation is well-known. You, you, you'll find it easily um, anywhere um, in, in a number of publications. There is, as you mentioned, in, in one of the chapters of my Nonsense and Sales, there is an, a, a detailed explanation of the equation. But essentially, the equation is a way to frame the problem conceptually and, and figure out if there is a way at least to get a ballpark idea of for estimating N, that is, the number of uh, technologically advanced civilizations capable of radio communication. Mm-hmm. And uh, the equation depends on a number of parameters, and I'll very briefly go through them because uh, we need to have some idea of just what it is that, that uh, the city uh, effort is based on. So the parameters are R, the rate of formations of stars in the galaxy, Mm-hmm. FP, the fraction of stars that have planets. Um, NE, the number of planets capable of supporting life that are orbiting those stars that have, and they do have planetary systems. Mm-hmm. FL, the fraction of planets capable of supporting life, uh, where life, in fact, does evolve. FI, the fraction of the latter that develops intelligent life. FC, the fraction of civilizations capable of producing interstellar signals. And then L, the length of, the ti- of time during which a technological civilization exists that is capable of sending out these signals. Mm. Now, you can actually have, our listeners can have fun uh, plugging in uh, their own numbers into the Drake equation. Both the SETI Institute, I think, and NASA have their own calculators online. You can put in there, um, put your numbers and see what comes out as, uh, as N. Now, the, the most recent estimate that I've looked at, uh, it's not actually that recent, it goes back to a couple of years ago, but anyway, the, the, mo- the recent estimate that I have from NASA about N, the number of civilizations in the galaxies, it's, only, it's, it's a surprisingly small 2.3. Um, 2.3? Yes, uh, on average. Of course, since there are no fractional civilizations, that means you know about two. Now, we are one. <laughs> so according to the best estimate that NASA published you know, a couple of years ago, there's probably just one out other civilization out there in the entire galaxy at this moment capable of communicating, which is not exactly encouraging. But the more important thing is, in fact, these numbers don't make much sense. Because if you think about it, some of these parameters, we know either how to estimate them or we have some ideas about them, right? For instance, uh, the, the rate of formations of, the, of stars in the galaxy is actually fairly well known. Uh, you know, astronomers have figured out mm-hmm. for the Milky Way and similar galaxies what their rate is. Um, the fraction of stars that have planets, until a few years ago, we had absolutely no idea of how many uh, there were. But now, in the last several years, we've discovered a few hundred extra solar uh, planets. Now, true, they're all nearby, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to see them or detect them. Uh, so they really uh, represent a, a sample of the planets only in our immediate neighborhood in the galaxy. It, mm-hmm. It's not that easy to extrapolate to the entire galaxy because uh, the stability of planetary orbits depends on the density of stars and a, and a, a, a number of other uh, situations. And since our uh, arm of the galaxy, our, our area of the galaxy is actually pretty sparsely populated by stars, but if you move much closer to the center, uh, one can argue, for instance, that the star density is simply too high uh, to allow stable planetary systems. But let's even, but, but at any rate, we have an idea at least of what that number is. After that, unfortunately, um, you know, your guess is, is just as good as anybody else's guess because uh, the number of planets capable of supporting life orbiting those stars, well, we don't know. Uh, again, in this point, we only have our own 
example. It is true that um, as far as the planets that have been discovered, the extrasolar planets that have been discovered recently, uh, people can guess based on their mass and their distance from the stars, but that becomes a pretty big guess. And if you move toward the right of the Drake equation, then things become even more iffy. It's, you know, the, the fraction of, um, uh, of the, those planets that develop intelligent life, well, we have no idea how to estimate that. We, we don't know how, what's the probability of intelligent life to actually emerge. And um, we certainly don't know what is the fraction of that, um, that number that eventually develops civilizations capable of interstellar communications. Mm -hmm. Again, we have no example other than our own. And we don't even have a single example to estimate uh, the length of a technological civilization because we know only of one technological civilization, and it still exists, fortunately. We haven't gone extinct, so we don't know how much, on average, a technological civilization, civilization exists, even if you were to take the principle of uh, mediocrity as valid, which, as we said earlier, is not. So in other words, the last three or four parameters of the Drake equation, you can pretty much put in there whatever numbers you want, which means that the total estimate is, let's say, not exactly reliable. Yeah, it seems like there's enough uncertainty about each of the many components of the Drake equation that... If you, if you were to try to come up with an overall range of uncertainty for the whole estimate, it would multiply very quickly with each additional high uncertainty component that you add to the equations. It seems, right. you know, like pretty un unstable. Like if you were to, to change any one or two of the parameters, of your estimates of the parameters slightly, you would get a very, very different estimate overall. Exactly. So it, yeah. Exactly. So the theory is really not bounded uh, at all. I mean, it's, the Drake equation was a very good effort uh, especially because it was produced really very early on. It was sort of a way to start thinking about these things quantitatively. But one of the things that actually is not, doesn't uh, um, look very good for the SETI project at the moment, and I'm talking about from a theoretical perspective, not from an, obviously from an empirical perspective, they have not discovered anything mm -hmm. yet. But that could change. That could change tomorrow for that matter. In fact, it could change before this episode gets um, broadcast, <laughs> in which case we'll have to do an appendix to it. Um, but, but from a theoretical perspective, one of the things that doesn't look very good for SETI is that the major piece of theory behind the entire effort was produced in the 1950s, and it hasn't been improved much, in fact, at all, since. Now, uh, the philosopher of science, Imre Lakatos, who was a, a student of Popper, famously said that um, uh, some research programs in science are degenerate, meaning that they don't lead anywhere. They don't produce... Um, any more theoretical advancements or empirical advancements. From that perspective, the SETI research program is, in fact, degenerate. Now, it, as Lakatos pointed out, even a degenerate research program can suddenly pick up if something completely new happens, but not much has happened. Now, when I put that in the, in the book, when I, when I pointed out that the, the theoretical basis of, the, of SETI were not particularly exciting and certainly uh, have not seen any recent developments, I was actually told by a couple of people to look at papers that, are, that recently um, uh, suggest that there, has be, there had been, in fact, um, uh, theoretical developments in SETI. And I'm looking at one of them in particular, which, again, we'll, we'll uh, link from the website. This is an, a paper that, that came out a few years ago in New Astronomy by Milan Kikovic and Robert Bradbury. It's entitled Gal uh, Galactic Gradients, Post-Biological Evolution, and the Apparent Failure of SETI. Mm -hmm. Now, right at the beginning of that paper, the authors list a series of advancements uh, for SETI 
uh, either empirical or, or, or theoretical advancements for SETI. And I'll read you very briefly what these things are, these advancements consist of. And I, I think one can argue that none of these are actually advancements of SETI per se. They are advancements in other areas of either biology or astronomy that have something to do. They are pertinent to SETI, but not. But that's not quite the same thing. So, for instance, the first advancement, obviously, that they cite is the discovery of extrasolar planets. Now, that is, in fact, directly an empirical advancement that does um, uh, sort of help out the SETI project because that is one of the parameters in the Drake equation. Mm -hmm. But the other ones are, you know, an improved understanding of the details of chemical and dynamical structure of the Milky Way and its galactic habitable zone. Okay, well, that's really an advancement in, you know, structure or astrophysics uh, more than actually anything to do directly with SETI. They claim that we can, uh, because of that understand, better understanding of chemical and dynamical structure in the Milky Way, we can make better speculations about... Uh, the galactical habitat zone, habitable zone, but I think that those are still speculations. The third point is a confirmation of the rapid origination of life on early Earth. Okay, but that's really life-bound biology. This is, this is about the origin of life on Earth. We don't know whether those things apply in other, in other places or not. Um, well, but it might bear on how likely we think life is to arise on other planets. Perhaps, but remember that, yes, the optimists would say so. But, but remember that, again, we're talking about, as far as we know, a unique event. And as we just were discussing, you know, you can't really say what the probability of a unique event is until you have a second, at least a second event to com by comparison. It yeah, but like, so, for example, the, the greater the number of independent things that would have to be true in order for life to d develop the less likely we should think life is to develop another planet. So we, it should adjust our estimates. Yeah, but we don't actually know how life originated on Earth. I mean, no, we don't, but I'm just saying that investigating that, investigating the conditions that would have been necessary for that to happen is relevant to SETI's mission. Yeah, I would say it's relevant only tangentially, and the, the bad news for SETI is that we haven't really made any progress in that. I mean, we, yes, we know that life originated pretty quickly on Earth uh, after the origin of the planet itself, but we really don't have much of a, of a clue uh, yeah. in terms of what and actually happened. Actually, interestingly, the, the argument that life originated pretty quickly after the, uh, after the origin of our planet is also subject to the anthropic bias. Yes. Because it's conditioned on the fact that we are an intelligent species existing at the point in our planet's history that we are currently. So even if it were really unlikely for life to originate this early in a planet's history... Still, if it happened at least once, the, the intelligent creatures at this point in time would look back and say, oh, well, it happened so early, so it must not be that unlikely. The anthropic bias is really difficult to avoid in all these discussions. Yeah. Um, anyway, so continuing the, the Kirkovic and Bradbury list, then we get into uh, discovery of extremophiles, uh, bacterial forms. So these are, these are you know, bacteria that, that live under very unusual conditions on Earth. Right, which is relevant because... It, it indicates that it would be possible for microbes to spread from planet to planet on meteoroids or asteroids, right? Perhaps. But again, we're talking really high, highly speculative things. And this is really more, again, an advance, an advancement of, uh, of terrestrial bi biology. We do not know. We, it's very difficult to extrapolate and, you know, how, to what extent these kinds of forms uh, of life, for instance, could exist on a, on a completely different planet. For one, for one thing... Um, even the extremophiles on Earth actually live, of course, by definition, in terrestrial environments, unusual terrestrial environments, but nonetheless terrestrial environments. That doesn't really tell you necessarily, unless you actually know something about the, biochemi the, sorry, the physical chemistry of extrasolar planets, which we don't, 
um, then it's hard to imagine what exactly that's going to tell you other than saying, yeah, it's possible that there is a variety of things out there, there's more variety of things out there than we might that we thought originally. I, I thought the relevance of that finding was that it makes it much, it makes it more likely that there's life developing on, on many more planets than we would have thought otherwise, because if it's possible for life to travel from planet to planet, as the existence of these extremophiles now suggests, then life would only have to originate on a few planets and then be carried by meteoroids and asteroids and spread to many more. So you wouldn't need nearly as many independent generations of life yes, to get but I, widespread but I life. Yes, but I'm going to disagree that, this, that the, this, the discovery of the extremophiles actually make it more likely or suggests in any way that these forms can travel from planet to planet. What, that, what it does suggest is that you don't need, uh, that you can have life on Earth living in a broader range of habitats than we've previously thought. Uh, you know, some of these things, for instance, live in very um, high temperature or high pressure environments, right? But none of these, as far as we know, lives in anything or can survive in anything like space. Um, I, thought, I, I, th- I thought that had actually been investigated. Like, have you heard of the water bear? It's this... The this, water bear. The water bear, yeah. It's one of my favorite animals, if you can call it an animal. It's this tiny microorganism that can survive at temperatures near absolute zero, and it can go without nutrition for years on end, and it can survive at incredibly high temperatures. So, in theory, an organism like the water bear could pass through... I mean, it, it could survive the extreme cold of outer space, uh, and suppose. it could last for years on an, an asteroid or meteoroid, and it could survive the entry into the atmosphere of a planet, which would you know, be extremely hot. That's so honestly, so it's, it's like a proof of concept, I'm gonna is what be, it is. I'm going to be pretty skeptical about Look up the water bear. That. It's really cool looking. I, I will, but the thing is, um, again, it's one thing to show that these things can resist very unusual conditions. It's another thing that to, to actually make a serious case that they can travel for long periods of time and, and do things like you know, surviving re-entry, for instance, in an atmosphere, which not even meteorites often survive, let alone bacteria. Um, anyway, there is some evidence, again, that there is some, you know, we, we certainly have improved our understanding, as these authors say, of the molecular biology and chemis- biochemistry of these things. Um, but then they go on and say, you know, uh, for instance, they count as a success or as, as bearing on SETI a uh, better understanding of the molecular biology of life in general and the heightened confidence in the theories of naturalistic origin of life. Well, I don't think any, any serious scientist ever doubted the naturalistic origin of life, um, so I don't see how that could possibly help the SETI um, if endeavor. Sure. Um, also, the exponential growth that the technological civilization on Earth, it says, uh, they, they say, um, particularly referring to Moore's Law, uh, and of you know the, the the speed of advancement of technology, well you know that that only applies to a very very short period of time, even within the history of our civilization. So I'm not sure again how much you want to extrapolate on that. Um, and then moreover, improved understanding of the feasibility of interstellar travel. Um, I really don't don't think that we have much of an understanding of uh, of interstellar travel. There's a lot of speculation, but mm-hmm. certainly um, quality understanding. I think it's a little bit of a stretch. And finally, theoretical grounding in various astroengineering and macroengineering projects. Now that is entirely speculative. We've never done an astroengineering project. We just have people talking about it. Now, now if this is the best that SETI theorists can do, it's interesting. But it's definitely highly speculative. Uh, you know, I, I strongly invite our listeners to actually check out the Kirkovich and Bradbury paper. You will see that by the end of it, it begins to look like a science fiction 
um, you know, speculative um, sort of effort. Uh, they may even be right on what they're saying. All I'm saying is, is it doesn't rise much to the level of um, you know, well-grounded uh, scientific theory. Uh, before we wrap up, I, I'd like to mention one other interesting philosophical argument that's relevant to the search for extraterrestrial life. So, Masuma, have you heard of the great filter argument? Go ahead. Give us so, the great filter. The argument is called the great filter argument. Uh, the term great filter was originally coined by Robin Hansen. Um, and I'm going to link to this paper uh, that outlines it in a nice, clear way. This was published in uh, MIT's Technology Review in 2008 by Nick Bostrom. And the title is Where Are They? Why I Hope the Search for Extraterrestrial Life Finds Nothing. So, <laughs> so here's the argument, roughly. Uh, so there are about 100 billion stars in our galaxy, about 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. Many of these stars have planets, and we have every reason to believe that there are a vast number of Earth-like planets in the universe. Um, and then there's other evidence of the possibility uh, or of, of conditions that are habitable to life. So, you know, the subsurface ocean on Europa, uh, one of Jupiter's moons, evidence that Mars once had water or is likely to have once had water. Um, and then the extremophiles, which I, I think is, you know, telling evidence Massimo doesn't. But anyway, so uh, despite all the many, many opportunities for life to develop, after decades of searching, we've never encountered any traces of intelligent civilizations in, in the rest of the universe. So from those two facts, we can conclude that there exists a great filter, which is essentially like a probability barrier. Some necessary and very improbable or very difficult to satisfy condition for the development of civilizations that could send out interstellar signals. So the argument that Nick Bostrom and other people like Robin Hanson have made is that this great filter could, it could either exist in our evolutionary past. So the great filter could be something like it's very, very improbable for life to even occur at all. Or it could be something like it's very, very improbable for intelligent life to develop. Like maybe there are many planets that have some kind of microbial life, but the number of conditions that would have to all co-occur in order for something like humans to develop is incredibly rare. And so, so that would explain the paucity of interstellar right. civilizations. Or the Great Filter could exist in our future. It could be that it's actually not that uncommon for intelligent civilizations to develop. But when they do, they almost always self-destruct at some point, you know, right. due to war, you know, or... Uh, or epidemiological disasters, or uh, they they run out of resources because they consume at such a rapacious rate. So, so essentially, what what Nick Bostrom is saying is, if we find evidence of life in in our galaxy, then that's suggesting that the Great Filter probably doesn't lie in our past, because finding life in our galaxy would indicate that it's not actually that improbable for life to develop. So that makes it more likely that the, the filter exists in our future, that it's actually much more uncommon for intelligent life to actually be able to, to sustain itself without self-destructing right. right. for the period of time that it would take for them to be able to develop the technology to send out interstellar signals. Well, it sounds to me like this is uh, the ones that you just mentioned are some of the answers that have been proposed over, over the years in response to this famous uh, Fermi paradox which right. is another one of those things that you just cannot talk about Sadie without mentioning. Right. No, it is. It is. It was a response right. to the Fermi paradox. Right. Do you want to explain what, what Yeah, that so is? Fermi's paradox apparently came out, it's, it's named after Enrico Fermi, the, the physicist who contributed to the development of the atomic bomb. 
And uh, apparently that, uh, what happened was the Fermi was having a conversation back in the early 50s with, with some of his colleagues who were all excited about these old new ideas about SETI. And, and Fermi did some back of the envelope or back of the napping, napkin calculation. They were having lunch. And then he says, well, if this is the case, then where is everybody? And what he meant by that was that even under very pessimistic assumptions about how quickly a civilization would spread throughout the galaxy, um, because of the, the very, very old age of the galaxy and of, and of many of the stars in the galaxy, we already should have been seeing uh, plenty of, of evidence of other civilizations. The fact that we haven't seen them might indicate that it doesn't, doesn't exist. Now, the first time I heard the argument, it sounded a little bizarre. There is this uh, analogy, however, that um, on, the, on the SETI Institute, uh, under the explanation for the, for the Fermi paradox, there's this uh, interesting analogy um, that I think make the, make, makes Fermi's point uh, a little more clear. Uh, it says, you know, the, the, I'm reading directly from the SETI uh, Institute um, website at this point. It's like having a heated discussion about whether Spanish ships in the 16th century could have uh, uh, come and along at two knots or 20 knots. Either way, they could have speedily colonized the Americas. In other words, it doesn't really matter uh, whether you assume that these that technological civilization speed at, uh, go around at uh, this particular fraction of the speed of life or uh, light or another. It doesn't matter. Given the amount of time that is available, they should have already been here. Now, some of the, uh, the hypotheses that you, proposed, that you mentioned are, in fact, some of the possible answers to Fermi's paradox. Right. So if one has to speculate about how to answer the Fermi's paradox, assuming that one does take the Fermi's paradox seriously, which I'm still not convinced, uh, my favorite hypothesis is the so-called zoo hypothesis, and which basically says that, oh, yes, there are plenty of other civilizations out there, and they're just looking in, on, onto us as if the, we, we were sort of a, uh, you know, curious animals inside a, a, a zoo. And um, that's why we don't see them, for the same reason that a lot of animals in the zoo don't see their, their zookeepers. I mean, once you start that why, unfortunately, we run into the same problem, sort of the opposite, the opposite version of the same problem from, uh, that we started talking about in the beginning, the mediocrity principle, the one based on the mediocrity principle. That is, there really is no sensible way of making sense of, uh, you know, speculations about, well, this is more probable than that, or this answer is more likely than that. Uh, again, I, I think that the, the sensible thing to say um, is the, the same conclusion, to arrive at the same conclusion, at the same conclusion that Andre Kukla arrives in that paper that I mentioned um, uh, earlier on, which is, really, for one week, all we can say is that the, the bound of, of our estimates for the existence of extraterrestrial civilizations goes between zero and one, which essentially is another way to say it. It's a fancy way to say it. It's, you know, we had no freaking idea what's going on there. Now, again, I hope that we're going to be proven wrong by the time this podcast comes out. You know, I'd like love to uh, wake up tomorrow morning and see in the New York Times in front page that the SETI Institute actually succeeded in what they're trying to do, and then we'll see. But there is a problem even there because, in fact, this came out very recently in an article in the New York Times, as, as it turns out, uh, by uh, Gary Gutten, uh, who is a philosopher. And he said, um, the article is entitled, will the, will the Aliens Be Nice? Don't Bet on It. And the idea was that, look, there's all this enthusiasm about the positive um, uh, uh, 
uh, outcome of a, of the discovery of an extraterrestrial civilization, you know, oh, well, it will have profound implications for us from philosophically and religiously, perhaps will cure diseases, will end war and all that. And, of course, the uh, uh, point is uh, that you keep forgetting what actually happened in the history of humanity when one civilization discovered the other. They usually killed them. And if there is, in fact, a reasonable chance of that happening, it might not be a good idea to actually look too hard for extraterrestrial civilizations. Right. So that actually, I mean, that's the sort of thing that's brought up by some critics of SETI, not the kind of critics who say, this is futile, it's a stupid idea, it's not ever going to work. The critics who say, this is a terrible idea because it's dangerous. <laughs> exactly, it might I mean, work. <laughs> I mean, I... I, I <laughs> It's not a completely ridiculous argument, no. and, it, and it, it is also, uh, I think it's a legitimate criticism that's been made by many people, including uh, rather famously David Brin, who's a, a famous science fiction author. That mm -hmm. the, I think even Stephen Hawking recently uh, made that. Oh, yeah, of, Stephen uh, Hawking also has made that argument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember David Brin saying a while back that it's crazy that something, an endeavor like this that has such huge implications for the future of humanity is being... Was, was made just by the small insular group of people without really ever consultation of, of the rest of us. Um, anyway, we're way over time. So let's wrap up this section of the podcast and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a website. It's called Ask a Mathematician, Ask a Physicist. So I could potentially be accused of nepotism because this website is run by two of my very dear friends. Uh, but it's, it's also... But I will not raise that accusation. So. <laughs> well, I feel, I feel legitimized in, in bringing it up as a pick now because they've sort of hit the big time. They were at the top of Reddit's science and technology page uh, pretty recently. Um, they've been getting a, a lot of traffic. So basically the story behind this website, it was born several years ago at Burning Man when my two friends, a mathematician and a physicist, set up a tent and hung a sign saying, ask a mathematician, ask a physicist, and invited people to come and ask them questions about math and physics. Uh, so they got, due to the uh, the population at Burning Man, which ranges from the giants of the you know, tech and research world to very, very stoned people <laughs> wandering <laughs> I, in. I heard that. They got, they got a whole range of questions from like questions at the cutting edge of quantum physics to, well, for example, there was one guy who wandered in and just asked, why? <laughs> and they were like, why what? And he said, no, just why? <laughs> it's a pretty broad, broad <laughs> question, I think. Yeah, say. so they try to answer everything, including questions like, how do I find the love of my life? And what is the meaning of life? And they try to ask, answer them using math and physics. Um, Good luck. They're, yes. they're very, I mean, most of the questions on the website are actually really interesting math mm -hmm. and physics questions, mm -hmm. and they're, they're answered in a very entertaining way. So, for example, um, there's the question, how do you talk about the size of infinity? How can one infinity be bigger than another? Uh, there's the question, is it possible to destroy a black hole? Uh, if we meet aliens, will they have the same math and physics that we do? And this was a question submitted by me, and it was also one of the most popular posts. Can you do the double slit experiment with a cat cannon? Like, can you shoot a cat at a giant and double slit? And the answer slit? is? Well, you'll have to read it to find oh, out. Okay. I warn you, it's full of really terrible puns about cats. So, yeah, consider um, I don't mind. I'm a, I'm a dog person. So. <laughs> 
Okay, my pick, on the other hand, is an edited book uh, called Doctor Who and Philosophy, Bigger on the Inside, uh, edited by uh, Corton Lewis and Paula Schmidtka. Uh, this is one of these you know, um, ongoing series. There's two or three publishers who, for a number of years now, have been putting out uh, books about philosophy and pop culture. And uh, I am a big fan of, of Doctor Who, the um, uh, science fiction uh, British television show that is actually is the longest running science fiction television show uh, ever, although it hasn't been continuously running, but it started in 1963, a year before I was born. So it's almost half a century old. Uh, it is going out through a new incarnation since the, they rebooted the series in 2005. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book, uh, of course, uses the, the many adventures of Doctor Who, who is a, a time traveler, uh, an alien time traveler, and uh, and of course they use the, the the various adventures uh, to introduce the public to a variety of philosophical issues, from the obvious one, time and time traveling, mm -hmm. to questions of identity. You know, who is this Doctor Who? Because this guy obviously um, uh, challenges all sorts of theories of ident personal identity that one can possibly have in, in terms of you know. Is your personal identity determined by your memories? By yeah, your haven't there been like six doctors? Like, exactly. No, there have been eleven. The, this, the, the, the current one is eleven. Oh the eleventh doctor. So clearly, there is an issue with personal identity there. Uh, and then there is a lot of uh, discussions about ethics because, of course, the doctor gets into all sorts of interesting uh, situations, including in two occasions uh, he causes a geno genocide uh, for apparently good reasons. And so, you know, that raises the question of, is it ever a good idea to cause genocide? Um, anyway, it's a very well uh, written book. There is a little bit of redundancy in the, in the chapters on personal identity. Um, the, the editors, I think, could have done a, little, a slightly better job in that area. But it is fascinating. And if you are a Doctor Who fan, this is a definitely a, a must read. And if you're not, you should be. So this is also <laughs> a must read. I hope somewhere in there, there's a metaphysical discussion about whether it's possible for the phone booth to be bigger on the inside than on the outside. Absolutely there is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>